here need a nap? That was last week, huh? What we should have done is about when you, when you got here, just like when you were in preschool, we should have said, okay, put your heads down on, the, on your desk. <laughs> I think we all would have taken a, uh, done that. I would have done it this morning. Well, good to see you this morning. How's the week going so far? It's in it. This is hump day right here. You can see the finish line. So hang in there. That's good. Just uh, talking to Scott here. He's talking about, remember he said share your highs and share your lows? You know, uh, isn't it wonderful that God is the same no matter how high or how low we go? Right. Yeah, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. Well, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for your goodness and thank you, God, for your sustaining power. Lord, you carry us. The truth of the matter is uh, you carry us during the great times when we are tempted to think that it's all about us. And you definitely carry us through the storms and the low times in our lives. Thank you, O God, that it's a positive thing that we can't escape your presence, that wherever we go, you're there. And uh, Lord, I do pray this morning that particularly if there's uh, some here who are going through hard times, maybe heartache and disappointment, discouragement, Lord, I pray that you'll give them a vision of uh, your abiding presence, that trouble doesn't last always, and that you're able to sustain and keep in the, even in the midst of the most dark, uh, uh, painful, uh, uh, incredibly excruciating times. Thank you, God, that you love us. And then today, Lord, as we talk about your darling son, we pray that uh, you'll be exalted and that our hearts will be warmed and that it just would not be information that fills, fills our craniums, but Lord, our, we will want to fall and worship before our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We give you glory and praise in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we're going to talk about Jesus today. We talk about Jesus every day. It's kind of like when our kids were really small and uh, we were having family devotions and, you know, uh, they, were, they were distracted and I would, uh, then I'd say to one of them, Brian, what did I just say? He said, uh, it's about Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> the answer is always Jesus, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the answer is always Jesus. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm like a broken uh, CD or whatever. Um, these are just summary snapshots you would spend if you were in a seminary or Christian college. Uh, you, you would spend uh, uh, a number of weeks on the life of Christ. So we're just giving a high flyby in terms of who, who he is. What makes Jesus unique? Amen. Fully God and fully man at the same time. What does that mean? Yeah, yeah that's true. Um, I guess what I'm driving at is... Uh, In his humanity, was Jesus imperfect? But if he was fully man, how could he be perfect? <laughs> there you go, little weasel. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're going to talk about this a little later, but let me, let me ask you this. What? Could Jesus, could he have sinned? Yeah, he could have sinned, huh? Was this temptation exactly the same as ours? 
Okay, now see, this is a big issue here. If you say that then, if you say that, then you would, you're actually saying that the Adamic nature had been passed down to Jesus in his humanity. Okay. Okay, so what causes us to be able to sin as human beings? What? Fallen nature. Where do we get the fallen nature from? Adam. As in Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So let me ask you a question, the question again. This is not an easy answer. Could Jesus then therefore, could he have sinned? Yes, but he didn't. Let me give you my position. They're actually, uh, they're, they, they, these are both legitimate positions, okay? This has been an argument that theologians have had throughout all of time. Uh, one of the positions is that some of you are, are saying here, which I think you need to read more, but <laughs> I'm just messing with you. People who with, with more brain matter than me have, have concluded the same thing. Uh, one of the positions is that Yes, Jesus could have sinned. Um, and they base that on, of, of course, a number of top-line texts, um, not the least of which is Matthew 4, temptation in the wilderness and, and this kind of thing. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet he was without sin. But if you look at that, it doesn't say that he could have sinned. It said that he was without sin. He didn't sin. And uh, my view is that the point of the temptation that Jesus went through in the wilderness was to demonstrate his lordship and dominance over the enemy, not so much his capacity to disobey. So, so you have these two camps, and I'm not, you know, either one, uh, like I said, there are great theologians on both sides of this thing. Um, the, 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 only, the only thing I'd like for you to consider, if you say he could have sinned, it does bump up against some amazing problems then uh, because it, it suggests that Jesus in his humanity was imperfect just like we are, which would then therefore make him an imperfect sacrifice. So you got to weigh that a little bit. You got to weigh that. That's not, it's not as easy as you might think. So when you say he could have sinned, what you're really suggesting is that there is part of the Adamic nature in him and his, and, and his humanity has, had been contaminated by sin. Had it been contaminated by sin, he would not then therefore be the perfect sacrifice for sin. So does that mean that Adam was imperfect? No, it doesn't, and that's part of the mystery there. But, but, um, if you believe in free will... Uh, let's, let's assume that. If you believe in free will, uh, God created Adam with, with, with a moral choice between righteousness and unrighteousness. Jesus being the eternal God, that choice was not in his nature. He has the attributes of God. Even in his humanity, the perfections... Uh, of, 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 he was a perfect human being, so there could not have been that contradiction in will, that confliction in will. So it's not, it's not as, like I said, it's not as easy as you might think. There are all kinds of issues when you say that he could have sinned. You got to back up a little bit and just, it raises those questions. But again, like I said, there are theologians greater, more brain matter than I do, who come down on the side that he could have sinned. Um, but I, I, just, I just find that, that, tent, that, that, that for me, the, the back-end questions, it raises more questions about 
his perfections or imperfections and where, did that, where does that fit? Um, could there be sin in the Godhead? You see, you see the dilemma here? Yeah. They existed before. And so where did that come from? Ultimately, we don't, un we don't understand the origin of sin. Let me say a couple of things about that. How could you be in the very presence of God and there be sin? What's that? Possible to sin, yeah. <laughs> you could be in the very presence of God. Where did that come from? All of that. The only, the only thing I would say about that, so we ultimately, I think, we, that's mystery. And anybody who says that they figured that out, that you probably don't listen to them because there, there's not the information. Where did it come from? Why was, why was Lucifer obviously jealous, according to Isaiah 14 and was that Ezekiel 28? Why, why was he jealous? Why did he compete? Where did that come from? And that's a mystery. And we don't, we don't understand that. Now, I will say this. Uh, You've you got to be careful of comparing angels to, to God. Angels do not have the attributes of God. So they don't have the perfections of God. They, they don't, they, they, they're not, I mean, uh, the, the, the attributes that we talked about last week, in, in, their, in their perfections, belong to the Godhead. So that's, that's why there is this, there's this circle around them. They're not angels. And uh, angels can do all kinds of things. We know they're fallen angels. Uh, there are all kinds of things that angels can do that, that God himself, God cannot sin because of his absolute perfection, his absolute holiness. And uh, so, I mean, I, we, we don't solve this problem here. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. To me, that's where it would fall down. Because at one point, I could see that Christ lived a human life that was totally dependent on God. You know? Yeah, so yeah. I guess for me, uh, I would like to hear your opinion on whether uh, uh, did he give up his deity or did he suppress his deity? Yeah, he's talking about the do he's talking about the theological concept of the hypostatic union of Christ. Okay. Uh, and the relationship, and, and the, 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 the key text there is Philippians 2. What does it mean that he laid aside? Did he literally give up his deity? Um, that's problematic, though, if you conclude that he gave up his deity. Um, most, not all, but most will conclude what that means is that he veiled the use of his deity, but he did. He 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 veiled the use of his deity to submit to to the program of redemption in human history. He had to suffer. He had to die. He had to submit. And uh, so, when you read in John ten, when he says, uh, "Hey, by the way, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down." And it is the veiling of, of, of the use of that. If, if you say that he gave up his deity, that's, that's, that's really problematic when it comes to miracles. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a paraphrase, but it's a great paraphrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's great. He gave up his divine privileges. And that's the way you have to understand that. If you say, if you say that he uh, gave up his deity, you, you have all kinds of headaches, man, trying to figure, well, if he did that, what's with the water turned to wine? What's what's raising up? What, when he, what does he mean when he says to Lazarus, come forth, I am the resurrection and the life? No, he didn't give it up. He veiled the use of it and subordinated it 
for the execution of God's program. Yes. I mean, the struggle between, you know, um, like his flesh man in terms of, you know, not going through this being separated from God and yielding to, you know, his, you know, he, he learned obedience by being suffering. Yeah. He modeled obedience. He le- when, when he says, when the expression learned, it means that he modeled obedience by the things that he suffered. I, um, we're going to get to that in, in, in a second here, but... Uh, let me just say, I'll say it right now, that, that Jesus in his humanity experienced, apart from sin, all that we experience. The need for companionship. And that, that Matthew 26, so you're talking about this prayer in Gethsemane, you see, the, you, see, you see the collision of desires, the mixture there. He had never been separated from God the Father, the intertrinitarian love and union that's there. And in his humanity, he did not want to go through the pain and agony of the sins of the world being placed upon his shoulders. And so he felt grief and pain. That's not sin. That's, that's his humanity. We don't preach enough about his humanity, including this old boy here. We don't preach enough about his humanity. Uh, not every human longing is sin. And that's what we see in Jesus there. Could you not wait with me? You hear the desire for companionship? Man, don't y'all know what I'm getting ready to face? And yet, nevertheless, as Philippians 2, they became obedient unto death, even death of a cross. And uh, it's so, yeah, it's profound. Let me, let me pass this stuff out here. Guys, help me. So getting back to this question, could Jesus has ever sinned? I think whatever side you come down on, you, you probably ought to say your position with a lot of humility because there's a lot of, there's a lot of mystery around that, a lot of unanswered questions. But one thing for sure, you got to be careful, got to be careful of, of somehow marring his perfections, whatever, whatever conclusion you have. Actually, my oldest son and I disagree on this. <laughs> yes, but even then, Ken, you're saying you're saying it gets back to does he have the the endemic nature? That's what makes it possible for us to sin, impossible for us not to sin. My, even my oldest son and I disagree with this. Uh, uh, you know, Brian is he's quite the theologian, and we we go round and round about this. And but you you come back to the same thing. You know, hold it with open hand and be humble about it, but be careful that you don't violate his perfections, whatever position you hold. Yeah, well, that's a good point. It's it's guessing. There's there's not it, there's not evidence that he's he he never sinned. So at a certain point, it, it becomes a bit of a mute issue that he he's the only person who never sinned. Nobody disagrees with that if you're in our camp. But uh, what we're talking about is that there's there's several passages that the 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 the, the core classic text is this temptation in the wilderness. What was that about? If he couldn't have sinned, why was he tempted? And the statement, he was tempted in all points, as we are, yet he was without sin. Uh, if he was tempted, what was, what's the point behind, uh, about that? And so that's where there's no evidence, but there is the experience of temptation. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to cover just, you know, let me tell you what we're not covering um, on the life of Jesus Actually, a fascinating study that we're not getting into is to take a look at the prophecies concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. 
It is absolutely extraordinary. And I would encourage all of us uh, to take some time and uh, look those things up. The prophecies concerning Jesus. It will, it will breathe confidence um, in your soul about who Jesus is and what he's done. So we're not, we're not doing that. We're not talking about necessarily uh, the earthly life of Jesus, which is another very, very wonderful, insightful thing to do. But for the sake of time here, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about the five movements in, his, in who he is. Um, we talk about his humanity, his deity, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And just take a look at what, what, those, what those things mean. First of all, the humanity of Christ. We've, we've already trudged in this. Some basic observations. Number one, he had human parents. Now, he didn't have a sin nature because uh, the Adamic nature is passed on through uh, procreation, human procreation. And that did not take place, but uh, he, had, he had a mother. Um, the seed was, uh, she was conceived by the Holy Spirit, uh, but he had a human father in the sense that Joseph raised him. I'm going to talk on Sunday. This is a, uh, Orphan Sunday, and I'm going to talk about adoption on Sunday. You know, there are three incredible figures in the Bible who were adopted, Moses, Esther, and Jesus. Jesus was adopted by his daddy, earthly father, Joseph. And so he had, he had, earthly, he had earthly parents. Um, secondly, as we said here, he was born of a woman, a virgin. Once again, why is the virgin birth important? Why does it matter? We've already said it. That's right. This is the big deal. You, you're going to run into people that say, well, you know, virgin birth doesn't really matter. And it's kind of, that's a bunch of bull. Yes, it does matter. It matters. It matters. It matters. Um, Jesus did not become the Son of God. He was the everlasting Son of God. And his entrance in the world matters. If he had been conceived of a human being, uh, as Ken pointed out, that, that we have all of us, we cannot help but sin. If he had been conceived of a human being, he would not be the savior of the world. So the virgin birth is a big deal. It is huge. Uh, thirdly, he was subject to the ordinary steps of human development. Somebody read, uh, what is that, Luke 2.52. I guess our Bible pages are stuck together here, huh? <laughs> I don't have Luke in my Bible. Luke 2.52. What's the key word there? There you go. Increased. So he had normal human development. That's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? And that gets back to what you said, the veiling of his use of his attributes. I don't think that, you know, when Jesus was a little boy, I don't think when his mother Mary said, okay, Jesus, clean up your room, that, that he said, all the toys in the toy box, boom, they went back in there. I, he didn't do that. I don't think he did that. I think he grew up. Oh, wouldn't that be great, though, man? <laughs> you going to spank me? I'll show you who's going to get the spanking, you know, all that stuff. But he didn't, he didn't do that. He increased. He grew. 
He developed just like, just like, just like we did. Um, and by the way, that's one of the great mixtures of, of uh, mysteries of the fact that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And how that, how that functioned in one human being. It's, a, it's an enormous mystery. And by the way, while we're on that, uh, I know that we wouldn't say this, but be very careful. Jesus was not part God and part man. He was all God and all man. That's hugely important. Why is that important? Why is that important? I mean, it's hugely important. For the atonement. Absolutely. For the atonement. Um, if he had been part God, it's just the, the total imperfections there. God, get, what's that? I don't know completely what that means, but it sounds good. <laughs> it was, it sounds really good. <laughs> and uh, at any rate, but it's, it's, it's important. All God, all man. All God, all man. All right. Think about, think, about, think about what you just said, you, and you answered your own question by raising that question. Okay. Who fills us? Okay. And that comes, he, 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 the Spirit of God is in us, right? right? But we yield to his control, okay? But that was not a part of our nature. What we're talking about here is that that's who Jesus always was. All right. So we have to yield to his control. And um, now, you know, some would teach, there are some views of sanctification that teach sinless perfection. We don't teach that here. Yeah, we, but we have to continue to yield to the control of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, that nature, that... that um, that control is not a given, and it's not a, not a permanent part of who we are. So we have to keep submitting to. Jesus didn't have to do that because it was a permanent part of who he was. It was his identity, 100%. Yeah. So, which, by the way, is another reason why I say he couldn't sin, but that's okay. Um, The, the, the other part of, of, of the third observation here is that the fact that Christ possessed divine nature does not work against a perfectly human development. Doesn't work against a perfectly human development. Okay. Now, another aspect of his humanity, which is really clear, he was born a Jew. He had human ethnicity. He possessed a human physical, I gotta be careful I say it, nature, but by nature here, we're not referring to sin nature. What are we referring here? Well, just like we have body, soul, slash spirit, Jesus had body, soul, slash spirit. I put the slash in there, which is kind of kind of biased. Uh, um, there are trichotomists and there are dichotomists and then there's me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I've sort of been influenced by Dr. Charles Ryrie on these things. Uh, people want to say body, soul, and spirit. Um, I, I, think, I think sometimes you got to be really careful. Some of these, some of these, this is just my view here. Um, but some of these distinctions are more artificial than you might think. Uh, Ryrie puts it this way. We have the material side of us and the imma immaterial side of us. And so I don't know that the Bible makes as big a distinction 
as we like to think, between soul and spirit. I don't think it makes, it, it, you know, I think those, those expressions are used sometimes, according to context, interchangeably. And so, that, now that's way off of this stuff here. I mean, if you want to be a trichotomist, say body, soul, and spirit, ain't no big deal. But I think there's the material side of us and the immaterial side of us. And the immaterial side of us, soul slash spirit, whatever you want to call that, the immaterial side of us uh, is that which is responsive to God or not. And uh, Jesus, for our purposes here, he had a body, the material side. He had a body, and he had a soul spirit just like we do. And so in that sense, he, he was fully human. Now, he was subject to the, and I put quotes around this, the characteristics of human nature. He expressed them. He got hungry. He had to eat. He slept. We know that. I mean, he was in the back of the boat while the storm was going on. That's actually, actually a, 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 both a model of his, of his humanity and deity. You know, sleeping demonstrates that he wasn't phased by human elements. But he's in the back of the boat sleeping, man. Yeah, just having a great time. And, you know, the disciples go back there. Hey, man. <laughs> wait, wait, you I don't mean to diss you, Jesus, but you better wake up here. We're about ready to die. So it's just a. Um, he felt sorrow and grief. Oh, let this cup pass from me. And as we pointed out, he desired, wanted desperately companionship. Will you watch with me? And we could go on to a number of things. So he was fully human. He was fully human. Now his deity, the deity of Christ, There's no question. I, you know, um, you don't need a seminary degree to see that the Bible clearly teaches his deity. You know, you, this is where I have a problem with some of our liberal brethren here. I, you know, you, you may want to reject his deity. But you cannot read the Bible with any degree of integrity and say that Jesus was not God or at least claimed to be God. You can't do that. You can't do it. So the, the most honest position would be is that I don't believe that the Bible is accurate. Okay, if that's, that, at least that's honest. But don't say, don't say that the Bible doesn't teach the deity of Christ. It's all over the place. First of all, he has divine names. He is called God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's called God. He is called the Son of God, repeatedly. He is called the Lord. He is to be worshipped. Now, I didn't list all of these. The number five is that he possesses the attributes of deity. All those attributes that we talked about last week, all of them are found in Christ. And I just listed a few of them. Eternality. Eternality. He is the everlasting God. And the scriptures teach it. Uh, omnipotence and life-giving power.
And how about this one? We said that God never changes. Well, immutability, that's the, that's the next blank, immutability, I-M-M-U-T-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y, uh, immutability, which is another fancy way of saying that he changes. Jesus Christ, this, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Well, who, 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 what should I say to them? And who should I say that sent me? I am that I am. And here the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the I am that I am. Religious leaders come to Jesus and talk about Moses and this kind of thing. <laughs> Jesus says, before Moses was, I am. That might be poor English, but it is absolutely correct theology. I am. He's always existed. His he doesn't change. Um, and then all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. So we can we could go on. He possesses all of the attributes of God. Now, number six here is that divine works are his. This is remarkable. Did you know that he is the agent of creation? He is the creator. It's remarkable. Did you also know that he is the designated one who sustains all things? And he has the power to forgive sin. He didn't just, he, he, this, uh, let's understand this. He didn't just die for our sins. The one who died for our sins is also the one who has the power to forgive our sins. In fact, in fact, uh, remember they got, uh, what's, what's the story? I just, just slipped my mind. Jesus, um, oh yeah, the paralytic that's in the house. And uh, Jesus uh, uh, heals him and, and then he says, and by the way, your sins also are forgiven. I mean, he, he has the power to forgive our sins. He didn't just secure our salvation. He has the power to apply our salvation. What a great God. Uh, he is the resurrection. Mary said about Brother Lazarus, uh, Jesus said, and he's going to rise again. I know he's going to rise again on that day, but, you know, and she's crying. And he said, Mary, Mary, calm down. I am the resurrection and the life. Even if you ain't been called to preach, that'll preach. I am the resurrection and life. He is the resurrection. And again, it goes back. It helps you to appreciate what he said in John 10. He said, no, 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 no. No man takes my life from me. When you have all that power, you understand his profound humility. He, Jesus was not powerless in his death, guys. This is, a, this is one, of the, one, of the, one of the problems I have with people. When, when, you, when you preach about the crucifixion and the death of Christ, um, the amazing thing about that is that Jesus wasn't powerless in his death. He was actively obedient and submissive in his death. There's a difference between the two. They didn't just do that to Jesus. He said, no, I'm letting you do that to me. You, you see the difference there? They didn't just do it to him as if he was a victim. Jesus was not a victim in his crucifixion. 
He was a victor even in his crucifixion because he was obedient to the plan of the Father in his crucifixion. Thus he willfully humbled himself and submitted. And so I would argue that his submission was a display of power. By the way, by the way, all true humility is a display of power. Weird paradox, isn't it? All true humility is a display of power. Because all true humility, humility says, I can submit to you because actually you don't control me. God does. So even the giving up of my rights doesn't mean that I'm giving in to you. That, that's all true humility. It's just, that's a little aside here. But sometimes what we, low self-esteem and all that kind of stuff and, you know, being, being punked out by people and frightened and that kind of thing, we pass that off as being humble. That's not being humble. Yeah. So, so is there a place for Christians to ever be proud? All depends on how you define proud. God hates pride. And the reason why he hates pride when you think about it is pride is self-reliance. Pride is self-idolatry. That's the reason why he hates it. In fact, the text says, oh, what is it, James says that God opposes the proud. It's a military term. God comes after people who are proud. That's why pride is never a good thing. So it all depends on how you, how you. Yeah, there is a there is a pride that is an expression of humility. Let me let me let me let me explain. So let's say let's say that um, your child does something extraordinary. I mean, the response is that, oh man, I am so proud of you, honey. I think what we're really saying is, I am so grateful to God for how you have used your life and your ability. It just makes me feel good because it's so right. So I think that's fine. I think there is, I think, so that's what I meant by, it all depends on how you define pride. Now, if you come across and you say, you know, hey, look, Ain't no child in the world as good as my child. You got issues, Leroy. <laughs> I mean, right? You, sort of, you fell off the edge. That's, that's an unhealthy kind of deal. I, I think we all know what that is, though. You know, uh, we, we... What's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, where are we here? works, um, forgives sin, he is resurrected. Also, by the way, he is the judge of all mankind. So when you look at his deity and his humanity, you, you, gotta, you don't, don't, don't have some picture of a passive Jesus, all right? Um, that's who he is. Now let's take a look at the death, thirdly, the death of Christ. The death of Christ. First is the suffering of Christ. The incarnation was for the purpose of the what? Okay. I would say crucifixion. You could say, in a certain sense, the only reason why Jesus was born was to die. 
That's why John says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to do what? Take away the sins of the world. So don't, don't, get it, don't, get it, don't get it twisted. You know, sometimes when we preach on Christmas and that kind of thing, we talk about his incarnation, and it's absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, but you got you to gotta, you gotta connect you got to connect incarnation with Good Friday. Because everything in human history was headed toward Calvary. Jesus was born to die. And uh, we want to minimize that in our culture. We want to, you know, we just want to, uh, all the nice and wonderful things that he did with his life. And, that, and that's true, but all of that was moving to one place, Golgotha. Golgotha, that sweet little baby boy was headed toward the cross. And so the incarnation in and of itself, the whole purpose of it was the crucifixion. And I'm being redundant here. The next bullet point is that the central theme of the scriptures is the suffering of Jesus. That's the central theme of the Bible. The central theme of the gospel 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 3, is that he died for our sins and he was raised again. Biblical, the gospel is dripping with blood, saturated with sacrifice. And very, be very careful that when you present the gospel that you don't... <laughs> How do I say this? That you don't, when you present the gospel, that you don't so, so talk about um, what human needs are to be happy, to be fulfilled, to be joyful, you know, to have a life of purpose and all of that. That that obscures the horror of our sin and the need for his death. The horror of our sin and the need for his sacrificial death. That's core to the gospel. That's core to the gospel. Somebody had to die for you. Somebody had to die for me. They had to die for us in order for us to be free. And it was no less than the perfect God-man. And, and I, I, I fear that sometimes in our preaching and sharing of the gospel, we... We, don't, we, we jump over that too quickly. But that is, that is the message. And that's the reason why Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the message of the cross is that in that parish foolishness. Because you're really exalting death and brokenness and suffering. And you're really saying that, no, 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 you weren't that good. No, mm -mm, you weren't. You, you deserved hell. You deserved the wrath of God. But rather than it being poured out on you, it was poured out on him. So as you preach the gospel, as you share the gospel, now don't beat people up with that. But folks need to come to grips with their sin and what that sin did and the death of Christ and the suffering that he had to go through. So suffering is central to the gospel. The suffering of Christ also is the song in heaven. Actually, somebody quickly uh, read Revelation chapter 5. You'll be able to get there. It's the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, verses 8 through 12. Mm -hmm. 
Hallelujah. 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 There's singing up in heaven. <laughs> but see, when we sing redemption story, the angels will fold their wings. For angels cannot sing the joys that our salvation brings. And that's all because of the lamb that was slain. That's the song in heaven. And that's what we rejoice about. Now, um, four biblical descriptions of the death of Christ. It, he, he died as a substitute. As a substitute. He died in our place. We deserve death. But his death was a substitute. We don't like talking about that too much because we want to celebrate the veracity and potential and wonders of humanity. No, he died as a substitute. Uh, he died as propitiation, P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. What does propitiation mean? Uh, okay, what's that? That's right, key word is satisfaction. That goes in that, that, that uh, parenthesis there. Satisfaction. God was fully, completely satisfied. What needed to be satisfied? His wrath. Okay, what was his, what, what is, what is his wrath in reaction to? Why was his wrath a reaction to sin? What was violated about God? Holiness. His holiness was violated. And his holiness needed to be satisfied. His holiness needed to be satisfied. Again, this is the reason why he had, he had to send. Jesus had to be perfect in his humanity, perfectly God, perfectly man. And there needed to be a perfect sacrifice because God will never change anything about his nature. Hear me on that. Hear me on that. God will never change anything about his nature. He will not violate his nature. And so, so you got to be careful. Sometimes when we want people to understand the Bible, we say God is different in the Old Testament, uh, different in the New Testament than he was in the Old Testament. No, he's not. He is not different. He's not different. Because he responds to us in grace does not mean that he has lessened his standards. It means that his standard of holiness has been satisfied in Christ. And that the blood has covered our sin. God is just the same as he was in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. His nature has not changed. His standards have not changed. The solution has been executed. Okay, That's an important thing to understand. As you teach and as you share with others, and you'll be teaching others and preaching this kind of thing, uh, we want to say, well, he's a God of law in the Old Testament, a God of grace in the New Testament. Well, yes and no. Uh, we see grace released. And by the way, there's grace in the Old Testament too. Chesed, God's loving kindness. We see that all the way through. So God hasn't changed. It, it, it means that it means it means that he. He has, he has solved the dilemma, not that God has a dilemma, but he has solved the problem of sin. And he pours out on us grace after grace after grace after grace after grace because the solution has been executed. But God is the same in his nature. Um, yes.
Not so sure I'm following you there. Um, Okay, let me, let me back up a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I think I'm following you here um, quickly. Um, even in the Old Testament, you know, there are people who are saved in the Old Testament because they look forward to God's provision. And, and they look, although they couldn't understand it, that ultimately God was going to take care of that, they look forward to the cross. We're saved because we look back to the cross. But it was always the cross there. Now, the way in which that was executed in the Old Testament was that, you know, through obedience and through the sacrificial system, uh, we kept turning to him. But the issue of sin had not been ultimately, finally settled. It was sort of like there were IOUs that God would write out every year after the Day of Atonement. IOU, 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 IOU. And they had to keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. And then finally, in the fullness of time, Jesus comes and once and for all, as the writer of Hebrews says, no more sacrifices, no more bulls, no more goats. So his wrath was delayed and appeased, you might say, but it was ultimately satisfied in the death of Christ. Okay, let me hustle on here. Um, all right, so uh, the, 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 the fourth description is as reconciler. Now, there, I put this in here. There's active reconciliation and passive reconciliation. Active reconciliation means a removing, removing barriers between God and man. Only God could do that. Only God could do that. That's active reconciliation. When we say passive reconciliation, we, doesn't, we don't mean that man is passive, but it, we mean a response to God's initiative. On our part, it's a change of attitude and disposition toward God. You might want to put in parentheses repentance. Repentance is an expression of, and it's a theological term, passive reconciliation or the human response. Fourthly, uh, the death of Christ is as sacrifice. We said substitute and sacrifice. We already mentioned this. His life was given for ours. Let's take a look at the resurrection of Christ. This is, this is woefully inadequate, what I've put down here, but just a few words. Um, first is the observation that Jesus was dead. That's what makes it resurrection and not resuscitation. He was literally dead. There can be no resurrection unless you're dead, Period. So he wasn't resuscitated. He was actually dead. And there are a number of texts that I put, put down here. Secondly, Jesus was literally raised from the dead. And again, this is like woefully inadequate here, but just a few observations. There's the fact of an eyewitness. There were those who knew him before the resurrection. So it wasn't a case of mistaken identity. They knew him before the resurrection. Um, Paul staked his life and ministry on the resurrection. Prayerfully read 1 Corinthians 15. Prayerfully read that. He staked his life and ministry on the resurrection. Uh, then you have Christ's own body before and after the resurrection. He says, look, no, it's me. Look, come here, touch me. Look, no, it's me. Your eyes are not deceiving you. This is not some look-alike Jesus contest here. 
No, this is, this is really me. This is his own body. And then Peter's testimony, because he was at the empty tomb, Jesus is alive. Let's say a word about the ascension, which is really, we don't talk enough about this. This is really a marvelous, marvelous aspect of our, of our Lord's present ministry. The ascension of Christ. According to Hebrews 6.20, Jesus has entered heaven as a representative. Check this out. He eternally represents us. Think about that. Jesus eternally represents us before the Father. He has gone to prepare a place for his people. According to John 14, 2. We don't know what all that means. Thirdly, he is now appearing before God on our behalf. You might want to put in the parentheses, in parentheses there, he's interceding for us. I suppose that's kind of another side of representation. He represents us, but he's interceding for us. And then finally, he has taken his place at the right hand of God. At the right hand of God is a place of pleasure and authority. And that's where he is. Time for maybe one or two questions and then... Yeah, I think it's because we're too horizontal in our Christianity. We're too horizontal. Meaning, we, and, and don't get me wrong, Christianity does work. Um, we, we are so, we're so horizontal in, in the sense that, uh, you know, we, God, you know, meet this need for me. And we, we kind of can become consumerish in our approach to Christianity do this for me, solve this problem for me, step into this situation for me, and this kind of thing. That, that um, and again, I don't want to, I don't, I'm, I'm struggling here because that, all of that is true, and he does meet us at our point of need, and let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, and, uh, you know, ask, seek, and knock, and all of that, and he does give us the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and all of that's relational stuff. But I think what, what I'm most concerned with is that the loss of a vertical perspective and the loss of awe and wonder about our great God and the loss of the fear of God, that we've become pedestrian, we've domesticated him, assuming that he, he exists to serve me, where it's the other way around. <laughs> We exist to serve him. And I think our brand of Christianity in the West is full of consumerism, full of utilitarianism. Uh, and so, so that's the reason why we, we're so, so hyper-individualistic about our Christianity. And we can't appreciate mystery. We can't appreciate wonder. Uh, we have a hard time worshiping when it is not to my tastes. That's because we're too central in how we do our Christianity. God has got to be central in our Christianity, not us. It's what he wants and not constantly what I want from him. So that's what I mean by that. Yeah. One more?
back to the 40 days in the desert. Conversations. I mean, it's just like little things, little understanding. It almost seems seems absurd to me that Satan did Satan know he was God? Did Satan knew he was God? He tried to tempt Jesus. I mean, Jesus just said, "Do I made you?" Yeah. Well, see. That what your, your question is a great one. Your observation is a wonderful one. See, this, is, this, this helps us all, all understand that all sin is, is, is self-deception. You know, I've, I've quoted Chuck Swindoll so much on this. All sin means to live in a state of temporary insanity. Satan is insane. It's, he's asininely stupid, ultimately. And to me, that was a showdown there in the wilderness. The showdown in the wilderness was Jesus, you know, saying, seriously? Be gone. And, uh, um, you know, and so, I mean, you can look at it e either way. But to me, that, that was the essence of that temptation was the demonstration of the lordship and mastery of Jesus. Uh, in, in, in the arrogance, in the arrogance of the enemy, and to the point of insanity. That's right. Yeah. Okay, Scott. <clears throat> 